yeah, yeah, oh yeah. What condition my condition was in? Anyway, okay, sorry. You can cut that out. <laughs> you can just leave it at the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans. We're three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State, share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a member of one of the most iconic rock bands in American history, and a successful solo artist, and the country roots he developed in his small East Texas hometown, shone through in all his music. Today we're talking about Don Henley. But first... What's your favorite FFA or 4-H competition in Texas? Well, um, I'm going to say the one, whichever one ends with the tastiest meat. Um, or bunnies. Bunnies are good, too. Bunnies are cute. Well, it, it, now somewhat, but especially in my younger childhood, I, um, I'm pretty much allergic to all God's creatures, great and small, and grass and trees. And hay, which is everywhere at these stupid county fairs. So like, I was only good for I was only good for a short time before it ended in a sneezing fit and, and swollen eyes. Um, but my sister did have a couple of competition rabbits who were just mean, vicious, nasty. I mean, they were adorable, but then when you had to handle them, they were just really mean. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going to go with the 4-H because that's what she was in. Yeah, um, all the straw was to soak up the pee. So, it's true. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather walk through straw than uh, puddles of um, miscellaneous animal urine. But hey, maybe I'm just weird. Wow, way to judge people, Scott. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go with the one I did in FFA, and that was parliamentary procedure. Mr. Chairman, I call the question. <laughs> so oh, imagine yeah. imagine a bunch <laughs> of random random parliamentary procedure actions by four freshmen wearing uh, FFA jackets, which those of you who are not from Texas, if you don't know what an FFA jacket is, you need to go seek it out because I'm sorry, FFA jackets are cool. <laughs> corduroy, blue corduroy with a big yellow sunburst on the back. Yeah, well, they get you, uh, they buy you street cred in a few few small corners of Texas, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Call the question! Call the question. <laughs> I yield. I yield we, my time went, to the speaker yeah. from Podunk. We made it to <clears> area. <throat> we got to the Houston Livestock Show. So, area competition it was fun. Donald Henley was born in the little piney woods town of Gilmer, Texas, in 1947. He grew up in the even smaller piney woods town of Linden in Cass County. His father was a World War II veteran and ran an auto parts store while his mother was a teacher. He took piano lessons as a kid, but Pretty much like every kid in Texas, he wanted to play high school football. Because he was relatively small and suffered a fairly serious injury early on, his coach suggested he quit. He went on to join the band and started with the trombone, but quickly moved on to his home in percussion. And from that moment on, he learned where his true talents lay. Henley was asked to join a local Dixieland band formed by the father of one of his friends, guitar player Richard Bowden. Another friend, Jerry Surratt, joined him in the band, and they became the Four Speeds, although I think there only may have been three of them. At any rate, they later added members, and they changed their name to Felicity in 1964. The early to mid-60s were a golden era in Texas and in the U.S. for high school garage bands. 
And anywhere there's a high school sock hop or a roller rink, there's a group of kids ready to perform. Felicity did better than most high school bands, though, and they gained local and even statewide attention, especially when they began performing in Future Farmers of America, or FFA, talent competitions. They signed with a local producer, and they even released a single that Henley wrote called Hurtin'. Henley stayed an East Texas boy throughout his early life, attending Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches for a couple of years. He studied English literature both there and when he moved on to North Texas State University, which is now the University of North Texas, from 1967 to 1969. He dropped out, though, so he could spend time with his dying father. After he returned home, he rejoined Felicity, and shortly afterwards, they met another Texas musician named Kenny Rogers. Rogers had been in California in the music business for a few years and had just dropped a huge pop hit with his group, the first edition, called I Just Dropped In to See What Condition Your Condition Was In. Now yeah. made famous, of course, in the film um, The Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. What condition my condition was in? Anyway, okay, sorry. You can cut that out. <laughs> you can just leave it at the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rogers took an interest in Henley and the band, and they changed her name to Shiloh. They recorded a few songs for Rogers and released another song, Jennifer, Oh My Lady. Sadly, Surratt died in a dirt bike accident right before their single was released, and the band replaced him with Richard Bowden's cousin, Michael. Rogers brought them out to L.A., got them a deal with Amos Records, and even put them up in his house for a few months. In what would become a trend for Henley, Shiloh broke up just a year later. In what would become a trend for Henley, Shiloh broke up just a year later in 1971 due to a dispute between Henley and Richard Bowden over leadership and creative differences. Richard Bowden went on to become a session and touring musician before starting a musical comedy duo with the country singer Sandy Pinkard, where they performed parodies of popular country songs of the 70s and 80s. Think a hee-haw weird owl, basically. Other members of Shiloh at the end were Al Perkins, who became known as the world's most influential dobro player, as an in-demand session man for that instrument, and Jim Ed Norman, who became a Grammy-winning arranger and producer, and later president of Warner Records. Despite the breakup of the band, all of them remained friendly, and they all later worked with Henley at various points. The move to L.A. was the beginning of musical history for Don Henley. Stuck in L.A. and bereft of his own band, Henley met Michigan native Glenn Fry, who was also signed to Amos Records, as part of the folk duo Long Branch Penny Whistle with Texan J.D. Southern. They were recruited by producer John Boylan, who managed rising rock star Linda Ronstadt, to play drums and guitar, respectively, in the backup band for her 1971 tour. For a single show in July 1971 at Disneyland, they were joined in backing Ronstadt by bassist Randy Meisner and guitarist Bernie Leiden for a single show in July 1971 at Disneyland. The four of them clicked, and they decided to form their own band. They called themselves the Eagles and officially formed in September 1971 and were immediately signed to David Geffen's Asylum Records label. They released their first self-titled album in 1972 and it resulted in an instant classic, Take It Easy, written by Fry and their friend Jackson Brown. The band didn't have a quote-unquote lead singer, but instead the lead vocals were handled by each of the band's members depending on the song. That song, Witchy Woman, was the first that Henley wrote 
in partnership with Leiden. He also sang another Jackson Brown pen song, Nightingale, on the album. On their next album, Desperado, Henley co-wrote most of the songs, and his partnership with Fry produced two of the all-time classic songs that came out of the album, both the title track and Tequila Sunrise. The album Desperado was not the breakout success that the original Eagles album was, but it was more of a slow burn, and it eventually earned more platinum certifications than their first album. Their 1974 album, On the Border, was more immediately successful, and in fact, garnered them their first Billboard number 1 hit. This was a ballad that Henley sang called The Best of My Love. They also added a member. Don Felder had been brought in to play slide guitar on the song Good Day in Hell. He hit it off with the group as he provided a much more rock sound than their usual country sound. Their next album, One of These Nights, from 1975, was an even bigger hit. It produced three top ten singles, including the number one hit title track, as well as Lion Eyes and Take It to the Limit. This album sold four million copies and was nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year. Lion Eyes was nominated for Record of the Year, and that song won the Eagles a Grammy for Best Pop Performance by Duo or Group. The band then went on a worldwide tour to support this album. Unfortunately, the massive success of the band, its shift to a more rock-oriented sound, the constant cycle of touring, and the increasingly authoritarian behavior from both Henley and Fry was too much for Bernie Leadon. He quit the band in 1975 by pouring a beer over Fry's head. Leadon had a bit of the last laugh, however, as the band retooled with new guitarist Joe Walsh, Asylum released their greatest hits, 1971 to 1975, a compilation album that featured songs from Leadon's time with the band. The album went on to be their most popular record. In fact, it was the first album certified platinum by the RIAA. It would eventually sell 42 million copies, with 29 million of those sold in the United States. It's second only to Michael Jackson's Thriller as biggest selling album of all time. Amazingly, this Greatest Hits album doesn't contain what may be their most iconic song, the title track of their next album, Hotel California. The song was a six and a half minute epic based on a melody by Felder and dark and brooding lyrics by Henley and concepts by Fry. Henley sang the song and the entire band fought the label and radio stations to keep them from shortening the song. In the end, it paid off because the song hit number one, won the Grammy for Record of the Year, and is ranked by the Rolling Stone currently as the 49th greatest rock song ever. Brian Henley also had a number one hit with the song New Kid in Town, and they had another hit with the Henley song Life in the Fast Lane. The album itself also reached number one and continued to sell for decades, eventually earning 16 platinum certifications. And I guarantee that your parents or your grandparents have at least one copy on vinyl somewhere in the attic. <laughs> The Hotel California tour was the last for another member of the Eagles. This time, it was easygoing bassist Randy Meisner. He was exhausted by 11 months of touring and literally sick with stomach ulcers from the crazy schedule. He also had a disintegrating marriage. He also had a disintegrating marriage, and was sick of the bickering between Fry and all the other band members and Fry's abusive behavior. He skipped an encore in Knoxville in 1977 because he had the flu and he couldn't hit the high notes of the song Take It to the Limit. This prompted a fight with Fry backstage. Shortly afterwards, Meisner quit the band, and he was replaced by Poco bassist Timothy B. Schmidt, who ironically replaced Meisner and Poco several years before, and provided the Eagles with their main yacht rock connection. 
<laughs> Schmidt would only be with the Eagles for three more years, as the band was obviously a powder keg. The cause was yet another difficult tour and personal tensions that began during the recording of their album, The Long Run, which produced three hit singles, including Heartache Tonight, which was sung by Henley, and became a number one hit, winning another Grammy. This time it was Felder who hit the breaking point with Fry, but this time it would be for good. On July 31st, 1980, at a concert in Long Beach, a benefit for a California politician who Fry had committed the band to without their approval, it came to an end. Fry became angry at a comment Felder had made to the politician's wife before the show. The two spent the entire concert telling each other about the beating each would administer to the other after the show. The fight never occurred, but that was it for the Eagles. Fry and Henley told their manager Irving Azoff and their producer Bill Zimmick that they were simply no more. While they lasted, the Eagles won six Grammy Awards in their tenure, and they are the highest-selling American band in U.S. history. They're the fifth best-selling musical act of all time in America, coming in behind the Beatles, Garth Brooks, Elvis Presley, and Led Zeppelin. This success, and no doubt their infamously tumultuous relationship, has led some to call Henley and Fry the American McCartney and Lennon. Not me, of course, but some people. In a 2001 interview on Charlie Rose, Henley said that, quote, rock bands work best as a benevolent dictatorship, with the principal songwriters in the band being the ones to hold the power. He at least added Glenn Fry as a fellow dictator. Henley controlled the band through his intellect and micromanagement of their environment and working conditions, while Fry did so through often abrasive personality and relentless drive. So... Just the worst bosses you've ever had. Yeah. Imagine if Steve Jobs had yeah. a band. Yeah. No, no. Imagine. imagine, imagine. If, just imagine if Steve Jobs and Elon Musk had a band. <laughs> <laughs> We're putting the band back together, boys. You just yeah. sit down, shut up, and play your parts. So Don Henley, now in 1980, finds himself without a band in search of a new direction. He found that quickly, though, thanks to a remarkably successful solo career before an unlikely reunion would result in a surprising second act for the Eagles. But more on that next week. Well, let's talk a little bit about this week. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I Most of what I know about Don Henley is all his solo stuff, because um, that was the 80s. I was an 80s kid. I barely knew who the Eagles were. So um, if, it was many years later when uh, the Eagles got back together, which we'll talk about later, but that it was like, oh, Don Henley. Oh, that's Don Henley. Well, I will say he that... Was, in, he was in the Eagles. In in our house, it was a very 70s rock and roll house. It was very, you know, we had a lot of music, and uh, there was a lot of Eagles played. And that uh, that Greatest Hits album, there's that Blue Greatest Hits album with the skull on the cover, and the Hotel California. Between those two, those are those are two... Solid pieces of vinyl that uh, that anchored the household collection. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting to me that like though it's just he's. I, has anybody been to we we did our touring a Texas episode? Like, who's been through Gilmer? Yeah. Uh, hold on a second. <laughs> I don't know that I've been through Gilmer. It's it's uh, it's out there. It's on the way to let's say you had to do like uh, new uh, not New London uh, New Boston, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you head up towards Texarkana, maybe you might pass through that way. Um, it's it is it is deep 
tiny woods. It is very small, and I can only imagine what it was like in like nineteen. Uh, I th- now I'm not sure if I've been. What were the What was the other town he lived in? Gilmer Linden. and Linden. Yeah, I, I know that I've never been to Linden. Uh, that's on the way to Texarkana, uh, but it's not off of thirty. It's so it's like if you go up through Big Sandy, Mike. Mm-hmm. Gilmer's on the other side of Big Sandy from Tyler, so it's it's on the way to Pittsburgh. Well, I've been and to I Gilmer, believe, but I've not been to Linden. Yeah, I've been to I've been up to Mount Pleasant, so I think we've been I've been through Pittsburgh and Mount Pleasant. Uh, so I probably have been through Gilmer, but it may be one of those counties that I haven't been to. So my yeah, point it, is you gotta this. you gotta want to go there. My point is this: it <laughs> is well, it's it's due north of Jefferson, so it's yeah. you know the, uh, Linden is due north of Jefferson. Gilmer's a little more of it, but but my point is, is that it it is it is strict piney woods. Like you're out in the woods, I'm dangerously close to Louisiana territory now. You're really creeping up on that sort of red line I've drawn in the sand. Yeah, if if you if you take a wrong turn, you will wind up in in, in either Vivian or in southeast or southwest Arkansas, which is probably worse than northwest Louisiana. Yeah, exactly. So I just I think it's um so his roots are just very interesting to me. I mean, he is from tiny East Texas town in the 50s. Uh, mm-hmm. And then to become like to to be like the height of like California country rock or whatever you want to call. Well, I don't know what I don't even know what category you put the Eagles yeah. into. It's like it's like soft rock, but everything in the seventies is kind of soft. I mean, you had like some weird hits like that 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 yeah. Sammy Jones I mean, they- Chevy Van song that's really like confusing <laughs> in this modern era, but. Um, you know, you you look at what they did, and and they they had like a great sound. You know, they're the Eagles. Like you've heard you've heard all of these songs. Yeah, I think the thing. I mean, the deal is, is they. What's funny is that they were. I mean, Hotel California obviously associates them with California, uh, but it, it, you know, but really take it easy. I think is their signature or sound. But they were associated with a California sound. But that was just where they formed. They were all from different places. The only person from California was actually the last person to join the band, Timothy B. Schmidt. He was from California. Everybody else was from Texas or Michigan or Kansas or, you know, Missouri or other places. But it's that sound that California, it does have that association with that California sound that people thought, oh, I want to hear that California sound. And not the Yacht Rock sound, but the more the 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 rock meets Bakersfield sound, I think, is really kind of what it, 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 it was like in a lot of ways. But you know, as they went on, they did get more of a rock sound, especially when they added Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh is, is a, was a, was an already established rock artist, rock singer and artist, so he came in and gave it a little bit of harder sound. Well, I I would say this, and I'll quote Tommy Lee, the great Texan Tommy Lee Jones, and from uh, the Men in Black when he says, "You know, a person is smart. People are dumb, scared, <laughs> make bad decisions, or something like that." Because you look at Witchy Woman's a terrible song. Like, it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible song. <laughs> I mean, and the name's not great. The name's not great, and there's a lot of this Witchy Woman 70s, like, oh, no, spoo. I'm going to get, I hope, hey, you know what? Let's get some hate tweets going on this. Why not? <laughs> we always get such nice notes from people out there. If you want to send us something ugly about, I can't believe you're, I... you're, you're casting aspersions on Witchy Woman. But, you know, it's, you go like Google the lyrics and you look at it and be like, this, this looks like, this looks like 
a bad eighth grade poem. Like this does yeah. not look great. But you know, there's they did what they did, and they and they captured the imagination of America, and they had a, a bunch of hits, and then. You know, in Hotel California is one of those weird songs of like, everybody likes it. I don't know if anybody loves it. And if when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah. But I mean, it's a it's a bad cocaine. You just trip to like, sit and listen for six and a half minutes cocaine. of to yeah. sit for six and a, I mean, you understand? Like, let me just dial it back for maybe a few younger listeners out here. There was a time before videos where you just yeah. and you literally couldn't fast forward because things were on and on vinyl. Or on, only, or on the or radio. Or on the radio. Yeah, yeah or even A-Tracks. You can't fast forward on A-Tracks. So you're stuck listening to the song for the next six and a half minutes, folks. Like, you're stuck. So I don't know. It's It was a different time. Well, so for the most part, I tend to agree with the dude. Uh, when I hear the Eagles, usually I'm like, ah, oh, F, man, come on. The, the freaking Eagles. I appreciate, <laughs> no, I appreciate their harmony. I appreciate <laughs> but, the musicality. But, I'm just saying, like, their songwriting from a message and lyrical construction, you know, ain't the best. But it, but, I, but I'm not saying, I'm just saying there's some bad songs there that got a lot of attention. They have some good songs that I'm fine a, with them. There's a, I, I really like, I like Take It Easy. I think Take It Easy has really pretty harmony. And that's what I really like about Take It Easy. Um, and it has that, that vibe. And then I like Life in the Fast Lane because it doesn't sound like an Eagles song. It sounds like a Don Henley song that he did as a solo artist. But my, actually, my favorite Eagles song is from is In the City, which is a Joe Walsh song from the movie The Warriors. It's a fantastic song. The problem is it's not an Eagles song. It's a song that Joe Walsh wrote for this movie, and they put it on the their last album because they were so burned out. They couldn't come up with enough mm. dadgum songs to put on the album. That's why they brought in. Uh, that's why they brought in Bob Seger and J.D. Souther to help them help them write songs. You know, so I, I think the problem with the Eagles is that is that the songs are so overplayed. I cannot stand Tequila Sunrise. I can't stand Desperado because <laughs> I've just heard them so many freaking well, times i mean yeah uh, and and new york minute and there's take it easy i mean take it easy is uh, fine but uh, gosh almighty well, get over it all these songs just are on mm, all the time well there's a whole there's a whole host of songs like that that just have yeah. been played to death by by contemporary radio in the la- let's just say in just the last 20 years oh but, that but let would, me tell you that are, just are probably passed. raised that much ire well, they, the one that raises the are the most for me, mm-hmm. and we just passed the season where I heard it all the time on the radio, it's that Please Be Home for Christmas song that the Eagles did, that Christmas song they did. Hey, I'm going to That is just vomitous. I've been thinking that we should put out a Christmas podcast because this is the thing. Every year they got to have something. They got to fill airtime with something. Maybe we need to write a brain staple, come and take a Christmas song. I want to take a second out and, and just give a, a, a little history to this podcast because you mentioned Al Perkins becoming one of the best Dobro players in North America. Yes. And for those who don't know, Dobro is actually a brand name like Kleenex, um, and it's a type of a resonator guitar. And Gibson bought them, but they were originally founded by these guys called the Dubiera Brothers. But the idea is they, they patented this idea. It has a, a resonator, so... Because a, an acoustic instrument isn't loud enough, it has this sort of metal amplifying cone and this metal disc, 
where the hole in a guitar would be, you have this big metal flat disc. And they're, they're steel strings, and they're tuned okay. to an open chord, and they're traditionally played with a slide. So gotcha. it's kind of like before there was a lap steel electric guitar and the electric Hawaiian guitars, okay. you would play a dobro with a slide on your lap, and then they're very loud. So gotcha. it's a very loud... Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, there there were a pair of Slovakian brothers who in, invented this uh, this generation of resonant guitar. So anyway, I just wanted to throw a little interesting guitar history in there for those who might go, "What the heck's a dobro?" If you heard that earlier, mm-hmm. you can still buy Did them you... at your uh, local sweet. We can order them online from Sweetwater. Or go down to your local guitar center. Check one out. Yeah, uh, Roy Acuff was famous for playing the dobro as well. Oh well, now you know what they are, Sean. For, okay. for some of you, for yeah, I actually I, I I didn't know until you started to describe it, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's the guitar that. That's the guitar that has the metal disc. But the, according to Wikipedia, the song, for those of you young people who like the alternate country, uh, the old 97s have a song called The Volume Waltz, where they use the dobro. So there you go. The old 97s were like 30 years ago. I know. Look, they're, they're more for hip you, than we are. <clears throat> for you kids who are discovering something from 1998. Yeah. I, I just think it's cool that <laughs> that the band that he was in you know, the people went on to have a pretty successful solo careers and like the most influential dobro player in the world. Uh, you know, the, the hee-haw weird owl mm. and then the president of Warner records. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is, is that the, you know, you'll like, there's something weird was as you look at these rock and roll biographies and these rock and roll histories, you'd be like, there's a lot of hardworking, really talented people that sort of drift in and out of some of these, hyper successful people's lives and um uh, you know this reminds me a bit of the story of the the band the police where they talked to the members of the police and they said you know it wasn't that we were mad that sting left the band we were just happy that we had sting for the time we had him (laughs) because they're and they're all amazing brilliant musicians but it was kind of one of those things of he was there but then he kind of that phase was over and he grew into something else and i think with don henley we see that same sort of narrative of he did this thing and it's just these violent personalities and these hyper-competitive people, and then they move on. Yeah, so this yeah. episode is mostly about the Eagles, you know, but um, but I mean, yeah, Don Henley but, to me is the voice of the Eagles in a lot of ways, even more than, than Glenn Fry is. Well, if I tell you what, why don't you Twitter at us, hashtag Team, team Henley or hashtag Team Fry. <laughs> well, <laughs> Fry is dead now, so he passed it with his spoiler. This you can still be team. on Team Fry if you like, folks. It's okay. How about how about be on Team Felder? How about that? Team huh? Felder or Team Meisner? <laughs> I'm Team. I mean, there's Smith a lot of people way. on Team Walsh. There's a lot of people on Team Walsh. I, I actually am on Team Walsh. You're I on like team Joe Walsh. Walsh's. I like Joe Walsh's solo part. I think the problem is, is you know, the, the you and I, you know, we I think we all listen to the have listened to the yacht rock show and our friend uh hunter has from yacht rock has been on our show and i think it was hunter texas that said born. yeah texas born hunter hunter stare i think he's the one who said uh, on an on episode somebody asked them to is the eagles yacht rock and and it, they were like no, no we don't like the eagles no they're not yacht rock. <laughs> uh timothy b schmitz is yacht rock because he was in poco and later was in toto uh but i think i think hunter was the one who said they never ra- r- rose up to being more than the sum of their parts like the the beatles we're all remarkable musicians individually, but then 
when they were together, they were something more. The Rolling Stones, their solo stuff has never been the equal of their 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 group as their work as a group. Same with the Who. I think the Eagles. I think there is an argument mm-hmm. that they never raised to their some of their parts. However, you cannot argue with 42 million copies of a greatest hits album sold. Yeah, even people... over even over nearly 50 years, still you can't. You know, over 40, 45 years at this point, you can't argue with that kind of success that that they did raise to be more than the sum of their parts. That there was something special well, about. I, I, was... I don't like them, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with with success. I feel the same exact way about Kiss, and that is why I'm going to be buried in an official Kiss coffin that I bought at GeneSimmons.com. <laughs> uh, okay, well, okay, next we're... week. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about Don Hanley. So <laughs> That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shamatuyan. And I'm Scotticus. A big shout-out to our friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. And a shout-out to his wife, Tamika Jones Abendroth, for suggesting the topic. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at BlackguardPress.com. And if you love this show, we'll tell your friends. Don't take it easy. Get off the couch and go download the show. And get to iTunes and leave a review because that helps us out to find people just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, well, get on over to patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.